Everybody loves a good mystery, right? Well, today's Bible mystery is a really controversial one. We're going to spend this in the next few episodes talking about the Shroud of Turin. So welcome into this part one of what may be a four or five part episode series on the Shroud. Today's episode might be a little shallow. It does not yet represent deep and rigorous research, but we're going to kind of skim along the top. So I think it's an important episode and we're definitely going to unearth a lot of interesting facts about the Shroud. My opinion on the big question of the next few episodes, i.e. whether or not the Shroud of Turin is the actual burial cloth of Jesus, is a middle opinion. Call me a Shroud agnostic, at least for now. There's Shroud atheists out there that quickly and completely dismiss the Shroud of Turin, and you know what? They may be right, but I'm not, I'm not sure they've thoroughly researched their conclusions. Likewise, many faithful Shroud believers seemingly assume it's real and that it's genuine, and they don't really interact with some of the legitimate reasons for debunking the Shroud. Well, we don't want to make either one of those mistakes. We want to make a good, wise decision here. The fact is, there's pretty solid evidence on both sides, at least on the surface, which probably explains why the Shroud still has its believers and detractors. Now, let me say this up front. This is not a religious issue for me. I am firmly convinced that Jesus rose from the dead with or without the shroud as evidence. In fact, if it was proved genuine, I don't know that that really adds a lot of evidence to the resurrection of Jesus. And I don't think it detracts in the least if it was proved to be a, a fake or a hoax or something like that. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus is very important to me. Go back to episode number one of this podcast or check out my book, Easter Fact or Fiction, which you can find on Amazon, in which I list, uh, I think, 20 reasons to believe that Jesus historically, factually rose from the dead. And among those 20 reasons, the shroud is not evidential at all. So, if you don't know me, I am a Southern Baptist preacher in Salinas, California, of all places, and I do not at all believe in the Roman Catholic concept of relics or icons or saints or anything like that. So why would I do a long series on the Shroud of Turin? Well, for one, that's part of what the focus of this podcast is about, talking about Bible mysteries. Here's the thing. Protestants like me over the years have taken one of two major positions over the Shroud. And I can frame those two positions by quoting from really two of my theological heroes, both of whom are sort of on opposite sides of the spectrum in this particular issue of the Shroud. Charles Spurgeon, who utterly dismissed it as a fake, and C.S. Lewis, who actually seems to give some 
credence to the possibility of the shroud, although, you know, not really in a strong way. So here, here's a good quote on the negative anti-shroud side from Brother Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher of the 1800s. Do not think, too, that some seekers miss comfort because they forget that Jesus Christ is alive. The Christ of the Church of Rome is always seen in one of two positions, either as a babe in his mother's arms or else as dead on the cross. That is Rome's Christ, but our Christ is alive. Jesus who rose has left the dead no more to die. I was requested, says Spurgeon, in Turin to join with others in asking to see the shroud in which the Savior was buried. I must confess that I had not faith enough to believe in the shroud, nor had I curiosity enough to wish to look at the fictitious linen. I would not care a penny for the article, even if I knew it to be genuine. Our Lord has left his shroud and sepulcher and lives in heaven. Tonight he so lives that a sigh of yours will reach him, a tear will find him, a desire in your heart will bring him to you. Only seek him as a loving living Savior, and put your trust in him as risen from the dead, no more to die, and comfort will, I trust, come into your spirit. Now, that's great advice from, Spur from Spurgeon. I completely agree with him, except I'm not fully convinced the shroud is fictitious. Now, on the more open and, uh, let's say, curious side, we have our old friend C.S. Lewis, the writer of the Chronicles of Narnia series, Mere Christianity, the Screwtape Letters, etc., who lived in the middle of the 20th century. Now, C.S. Lewis is one of the great letter writers in the history of Christendom. I, I have uh, three or four of his books that are composed of nothing but letters, and they are thick suckers. This guy was a great correspondent and writer of letters. And one of the people he was pen pals with, of the dozens of people that he was pen pals with, was a Catholic nun named Sister Penelope. And I don't know the context of the beginning of this letter, but I'm going to read it just because it's interesting and I love the way Lewis expresses himself. But he says this, Dear Sister Penelope, I am ashamed of having grumbled, and your act was not that of a brute. In operation, it was more like that of an angel. For, you, as I said, you started me on quite a new re realization of what is meant by being in Christ. And immediately after that, the power which erring men call chance, in other words, he's talking about sovereignty, put into my hands Mascali's two books, on, in the signpost series, which continued the process. So I lived for a week end at Aberystwyth in one of those delightful vernal periods when doctrines that have hitherto been only buried seeds begin actually to come up like snowdrops or crocuses. I won't deny they've met a touch of frost since, if only things would last, or rather, if only we would. But I'm still very much and gladly in your debt. The only real evil of having read your scripts when I was tired is that it was hardly fair to them and not very useful to you. So obviously, Mr. Lewis was reviewing some writings of Sister Penelope. And then he says this, which is pretty fascinating. He says, I enclose the manuscript of Screwtape. If it is not trouble, I should like you to keep it safe until the book is printed in case the one in case the one the publisher has got blitzed. After that, it can be made into spills or used to stuff dolls or anything. In other words, Lewis has sent her a handwritten copy of or maybe a hand typed copy of the manuscript of the Screwtape letters. I mean, what a treasure that would be. 
This is how he closes, back to the shroud. Thank you very much for the photo of the shroud. It raises a whole question on which I will have to straighten out my thought one of these days. Yours sincerely, Clive Lewis. Now, the interesting thing about that picture from Sister Penelope is that C.S. Lewis had it framed and put in a prominent place in his bedroom where it remained for the rest of his entire life. Interesting. So on this particular issue, count me with C.S. Lewis, at least for now. While I believe Spurgeon is absolutely correct in condemning shroudish idolatry or worship of the shroud or any sort of faith in any sort of object or whatever, I do think he might be a bit hasty in his conclusion that the shroud was an absolute fake. I say that because I guess I've studied it for years in sort of a shallow way, and I haven't seen enough evidence yet, evidence, scientific evidence, historical evidence, to convince me that it's a fake. It certainly may be a fake, but it would appear that Spurgeon's theological prejudice against the Roman Catholic Church led him to dismiss the Shroud's genuineness as a possibility rather than some scientific, theological, or historical reason. So with that, continuing in sort of this this most basic introduction to our very extended discussion of the Shroud of Turin, let's do this. Let's do a top 10 facts about the Shroud of Turin. These aren't in any particular huge order. In our next episode, episode two of the Shroud of Turin series, we're going to start from the beginning and we're going to dig in and we're going to talk about the history of the Shroud, what exactly it is, all of that kind of thing. But for now, let's, again, we're doing a surface sort of scamming, and we're going to look at some reasons why, at least for me, the shroud is a very interesting item of cloth, to say the least. So let's start with uh, Shroud of Turin fact number 10. In 1898, Secondo Pia, an Italian photographer, took the first ever photograph of the shroud. And it was the negative of that photograph that would produce the most interesting image. The actual picture of the shroud does not show a whole lot because the cloth itself is very faded. But the negative image is fascinating. Four years afterwards, in 1902, an agnostic professor of anatomy named Yves Delegue wrote and presented a scientific paper to the uh, Academy of Sciences in Paris, a very prestigious organization, in which he made a very strong case for the shroud not being a forgery, but a genuine medical artifact. In fact, Dr. Delage concluded that the image therein was likely the body of Christ. Fact number nine. In September of 1939, just two months before my father was born, at the dawn of World War II, the shroud is secretly taken to the Benedictine Abbey of Mont Virgin, approximately 588 miles away from Turin. During that journey, the shroud passed through Naples and Rome and other cities, 
and it was not returned to Turin, which is in northwest Italy. It was not returned to Turin until 1946, post-war. In explaining the decision to move the shroud, Father Andrea Cardin, the library curator at Mont Virgin, wrote, The Holy Shroud was moved in secret to the sanctuary in the Campania region on the precise orders of the House of Savoy in the Vatican. Officially, this was to protect it from possible World War II bombing in Turin. In reality, Father Cardin continues, it was moved to hide it from Hitler, who was apparently obsessed by it. When he visited Italy in 1938, top-ranking Nazi aides asked unusual and insistent questions about the Shroud. Now, it should be remembered here by us that Italy was in fact allied with Germany during World War II, but apparently the Italians still sought to protect their most precious artifact from Adolf Hitler. Interestingly, Father Cardin notes that the Nazis almost located the Shroud. He writes, in 1943, when German troops searched the Mont Virgin church, the monks there pretended to be in deep prayer before the altar, inside which the relic was hidden. This was the only reason it wasn't discovered. Fascinating. Fact number eight. Very sadly, demonstrating, I think, the dangers of idolatry, devotion to the shroud has actually led to deaths maybe several deaths. For example, one among more than one incident. In May 1647, at a public showing of the shroud, so many people crowded into the cathedral to see it that many members in the crowd literally died of suffocation inside a church trying to see uh, an artifact. And an interesting artifact, of course, but not one worth dying for, even if it was 100% legitimate. As Spurgeon would tell us, Jesus is living and active and alive. The cloth that might have touched him is merely that, a cloth. Perhaps a miraculous cloth in some ways, but still a cloth. Fact number seven. The Shroud of Turin, or at least the burial cloths of Jesus, were mentioned many, many, many times by early church fathers. Not necessarily saying they connected those cloths to the shroud, because the shroud of Turin was not even, would not even have been the shroud of Turin in those days. In fact, John Calvin would tell us that one of the reasons why he believes the shroud was a forgery is that there are no early church fathers he can find that testify to his existence. Nevertheless, the early church fathers did talk about the burial cloths of Jesus. In fact, Origen, writing a little after 200 AD, said this, He wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and put it in a new tomb where no one was buried, thus preserving the body of Jesus for its glorious resurrection. There he's talking about Joseph of Arimathea burying the body of Jesus in his grave. Origen continues, I think this shroud was much cleaner from the time it was used to cover Christ's body than it had ever been before, for the body of Jesus retained its own integrity even in death so that it cleansed everything it touched and renewed even the new tomb which had been cut from the rock. Now that's interesting. The Bible doesn't really talk about that, but there you go. Origen, uh, known a little bit for making such speculations. Another early church father, this time the leader 
Hilary of Poitiers, who wrote in the 300s, he wrote this. Uh, this was in his commentary on Matthew, which I think is the first full Latin commentary on Matthew that we have. Joseph of Arimathea, having asked Pilate to return Jesus' body, wrapped it in a shroud, placed it in a new tomb carved out from a rock, and rolled a stone in front of the entrance to the tomb. Although this may indeed be the order of events, and although it was necessary to bury him who would rise from the dead, these deeds are nevertheless recounted individually because each of them is not without some importance. Joseph is called a disciple of the Lord because he was an image of the apostles, even though he himself was not numbered among the twelve apostles. It was he who wrapped the Lord's body in a clean linen shroud. In this same linen we find all kinds of animals descending to Peter from heaven. It is perhaps not too extravagant to understand from this parallel that the church is buried with Christ under the name of the linen shroud. Just as in the linen, so also in the confession of the church are gathered the full diversity of living beings, both pure and impure. The body of the Lord, therefore, through the teaching of the apostles, is laid to rest in the empty tomb, newly cut from rock. In other words, their teaching introduced Christ into the hardness of the Gentile heart, which was uncut, empty, and previously impervious to the fear of God. And because he is the only one who should penetrate our hearts, a stone was rolled over the entrance to the tomb, so that just as no one previous to him had been introduced as the author of divine knowledge, neither would anyone be brought in after him. Now you find here that the early church fathers had a rather unique, shall we say, way of looking at scripture. Uh, lots of allegories and that sort of things. One other early church father, the Venerable Bede, wrote this, The vanity of the rich, who even in their graves cannot do without their riches, receives its condemnation from the simple and unassuming interment of the Lord. Hence, indeed, the custom of the church was derived that the sacrifice of the altar should not be commemorated by wrapping the elements, in other words, the bread and the wine, in silk or in any colored cloth, but rather in linen, as the body of the Lord was buried in clean, fine linen. So, that's fact number seven. Fact number six is the burial cloth of Jesus is indeed mentioned in the Bible multiple places. I'm not going to read all of them, but a few of them will suffice here. Luke 23, verse 50. There was a good and righteous man named Joseph. This is, of course, Joseph of Arimathea, whom you might know from the Bible or you might know from the Holy Grail sort of legend, but there was a good and righteous man named Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin, who had not agreed with their plan and action. He was from Arimathea, a Judean town, and he was looking forward to the kingdom of God. He approached Pilate and asked for Jesus's body, taking it down from the cross. He wrapped it in fine linen and placed it in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever been placed. So there's evidence clearly that Jesus was buried in a linen burial cloth. Luke 24 also talks about this. Verse 9, returning from the tomb, 
they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things. But these words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. When he stooped to look in, he saw only the linen clothes. So he went home amazed at what had happened. John 19. Then they took Jesus' body and wrapped it in linen cloths with the aromatic spices according to the burial custom of the Jews. There was a garden in the place where he was crucified. A new tomb was in the garden. No one had yet been placed in it. They placed Jesus there because of the Jewish preparation and since the tomb was nearby. So there it is again. Wrapped they wrapped Jesus's body in linen cloths. John 20, last one I'm going to read here. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out heading for the tomb. They were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Verse 5, stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter came also. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by himself. Let me say this real quick. One of the top Protestant objections to the reality of the Shroud of Turin is found right there in John 20, verse 7 talking about the wrapping that had been on Jesus's head. Many argue that the way that the Bible depicts that Jesus was wrapped was a cloth around his body and a cloth around his head, a separate cloth. And obviously that would not fit what we find with the shroud. That is going to be a topic we look at in depth later episodes of the show. It's quite significant to me that both Luke and John mention the burial cloth of Jesus. Luke is part of what we call the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're all three considered highly related and all three contain very similar wording, not everywhere, but in some places. And that similar wording has caused many scholars to speculate that there was an earlier oral or possibly written source that all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, drew from. And sometimes, by many scholars, that source is called Q, which stands for the French word Kel, which uh, it can mean what in French, but it can also mean source. John, however, is not usually considered to be derived from the Q source or the Q tradition, so it is an additional layer of attestation that Jesus was buried in a linen cloth. Factoid number five. Whether you believe the shroud is the true burial cloth of Jesus or not, all agree that the shroud is very old and very fragile. Most cloth from hundreds of years ago has long since disintegrated. So to protect the shroud from damage, it is kept inside a hermetically sealed box that is filled with 99.5% argon and only 0.5% oxygen. Why argon? Well, take a step back to high school chemistry class. If you remember that, then maybe you might remember that argon is a particularly interesting gas, a noble gas. And noble gases have this feature that they are largely inert, which means that they will 
not react with almost any element. In other words, this means that decay and breakdown in the presence of a noble gas like argon or xenon or whatever is much less likely. Factoid number four. The shroud has withstood the rigors of time, hundreds of years at the very least, and multiple disasters. This, of course, doesn't guarantee its authenticity just because it's very old cloth with an interesting pattern on it doesn't mean it is in fact the burial cloth of Jesus but it is curious that it's withstood so many hardships for instance in 1503 the shroud was displayed at Bourg-en-Bresse for Archduke Philip the Handsome uh it's a pretty cool name if you can earn it Philip the Handsome Philip the Handsome was the Grand Master of Flanders. Now, a contemporary account told by a courtier that was present there, whose name was uh, Antoine de la Lange, he wrote this about the 1503 display of the shroud, and I quote, The day of the great and holy Friday, the passion was preached in Monsignor's chapel by his confessor, with the duke and duchess attending. Then they went with great devotion to the market halls of the town, where a great number of tea people heard the passion preached by a cordelier. After that, three bishops showed to the public the holy shroud of our Lord Jesus Christ, and after the service it was shown again in Monsignor's chapel. Of more interest to us here, Lelang also mentions that the authenticity of the shroud is seemingly proved by its having been tried by fire, boiled in oil, and get this, laundered many times. But, he says, it was not possible to efface or remove the imprint and image. Now, a mere 29 years after Lelang wrote this, the entire chapel that held the shroud burned severely, and the protective case that held the shroud was itself melted. Now, the shroud did suffer some slight scorching damage from this incident, and indeed it, it developed a hole because a bit of melted silver went straight through the shroud and left a hole. But by and large, the shroud is as it has been for hundreds of years, and it has persistently survived more than one disaster, and apparently multiple times in the medieval washing machines. Factoid number three, the blood stains on the shroud do indeed appear to be human blood. Now I'm taking what I'm about to read from uh, a website, historycollection.co, and I'm just going to be straight with you. I have not verified all of this information yet. Remember, this is episode one. It's a bit of a flyover. I'm going to be going deep, deep, deep into re research over the next couple of weeks. So some of this we'll, we'll, we might be debunking in episode two, three, or four, or we might be confirming. But I'm going to read this from the website. Uh, many skeptics regarding the Shroud of Turin's authenticity have long claimed that the image seen on the linen cloth is nothing more than a figure that it, an artist painted. In 1978, scholar John Jackson got permission from the Cathedral of St. John the Baptist to carry out tests to discover what kind of paint was used on the Shroud. What he found when he tested the pieces of cloth is that no binding or mixing agents were used in the color, meaning that it did not correspond with the known painting practices of the 14th century, the 1300s. In fact, what was used to create the image on the shroud wasn't paint at all. It was 
Dun, dun, dun. Blood. It was blood. Human blood on the shroud. The blood type has been identified as type AB. Furthermore, again, according to this article, this is one of the top things I really want to verify. Furthermore, there are two distinctive types of blood found on the cover. Pre-mortem blood, the kind of blood before a person dies, and post-mortem blood, which has undergone changes following death. Now, I don't want to call the people over at historycollection.co liars, but again, we're going to do some research into this and we're going to we're going to find some more sources for that particular factoid before we'll give it the Snopes thumbs up of approval. All right, number 2, factoid number 2. You've probably heard that the shroud was carbon 14 dated and found conclusively to be a med- medieval hoax. That conclusion itself was highly debated in the late 1980s when it came out and has been debated ever since. More recently, there has been some data that has surfaced that has cast some additional doubt on the original conclusion. A researcher, a researcher named Tristan Casabianca and his team, which I believe included some medical doctors, were able to gain access to the raw data of the original 1989 carbon 14 dating, and they found some significant issues. In a recent interview with the French uh, New Man magazine, Casabianca says this. Quote, in 1989, the results of the shroud dating were published in the prestigious journal Nature. Between 1260, and the conclusion was this, between 1260 and 1390, with 95% certainty. But, says Casabianca, for 30 years, researchers have asked the laboratories for their raw data. These have always refused to provide them. In 2017, I submitted a legal request to the British Museum, which supervised the laboratories. Thus, I had access to hundreds of unpublished pages, which include these raw data. With my team, we conducted their our analysis. Our statistical analysis shows that the 1988 carbon-14 dating was unreliable. The tested samples are obviously heterogeneous, in other words, different, showing many different dates. And there is no guarantee that all these samples taken from one end of the sheet are representative of the whole fabric. It is therefore impossible to conclude that the Shroud of Turin dates from the Middle Ages. Now, I know that Shroud supporters have said over the years that the place that was chosen for the dating, for the removal of fabric for dating, which had to be a very, very small amount, that place was part of an area that was likely repaired during the Middle Ages. And this would explain why the date came back in the 1300s. I don't know if that's true. I'm not sure it's provable one way or the other, but it's interesting. And I'll say it one more time, as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, I myself am a shroud agnostic at this point. I've heard various reasons to debunk the 1989 dating of the shroud for years, and I've heard people, on the other hand, confidently quote that dating as if it is completely and utterly convincing to them. Me, with a bit of research, but not a deep bit of research, I am, at this point, unpersuaded either way. Finally, fact number one about the shroud. And I gotta put fact here in quotes, just to be fair. 
because the fact I'm about to tell you is another of the many debated debated facets of the Shroud. I first heard about this one from my apologetics professor in seminary, a man named Dr. Gary Habermas. Dr. Habermas has a PhD in philosophy from Michigan State University. He's one of the best professors I've ever had, written a lot of books, considered one of the world's foremost experts on the resurrection of Jesus, and one of the uh, very few, I should say, evangelical scholars who really think the Shroud of Turin is the burial cloth of Jesus. And when I was in Dr. Habermas's class many years ago, he told us a lot of interesting things about the Shroud. And maybe the most interesting and compelling thing I've heard about the Shroud, according to Dr. Habermas and many others, is the not a fact, but a contention by some who have examined the negatives of the pictures is that the Shroud, the figure in the Shroud, apparently has coins in its eyes. Coins in its eyes. Now, that's obviously strange, but the issue is that in some first and second century Jewish burials, very few, I should say, but some, there is evidence that some were buried with coins in their eyes. Now, if the interpretation of these scans is accurate and there really is coins in the eyes of the figure on the cloth, those coins are apparently, contend some, apparently from the first century. Indeed, they match some coins very well that would have been issued around the late 20s AD, right around the time Jesus was crucified. Now, this one aspect of the Shroud of Turin will probably warrant an entire episode of the show. So we're not ready yet to say this is a fact or this is not a fact, but it's pretty compelling. And I must say this, if it turns out that indeed the figure in the Shroud of Turin does have first century coins in its eyes in the image that's taken of it, I would say that would prove with probably a 98, 99% level of certainty that the Shroud at least dated from this first century. Does it prove it was Jesus? Of course not. It doesn't. But it's a start, and I find the whole coins in the eyes of the figure in the shroud issue very, very interesting. So we're going to spend a lot of time researching it. Well, that's the top 10 facts about the Shroud of Turin. Honestly, there's so many other facts and interesting stories and, and, and such that I've left on the cutting table. But this is just a beginning. Thank you for listening this far. I do want to let you know that we are going to go deeper and deeper and deeper over the next few episodes. So if you haven't already subscribed to the show, please do. It would be awesome if you told a friend about it too. Honestly, the, the way people find out about podcasts is other people tweeting about it, other people posting about it on Facebook, and other people telling their friends about it over a cup of coffee or a Big Mac or whatever. So tell your friends about the Bible Mystery Podcast. Tell them to go to BibleMysteryPod.com. 
That's our website, BibleMysteryPod.com. That's how you can subscribe to the show. Or you can just go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher or TuneIn or whatever podcast app you use. We're on all of them. I think we're on all of them. And just search for Bible Mystery Podcast. And it's one of the top results, if not number one. And subscribe there. Tell a friend... Maybe leave us a review if you like the show. Maybe don't. If you don't like the show, we will try to get better. But I think this is going to be a very interesting next few weeks as we examine the Shroud of Turin in a in a deep sort of way. I, I myself am looking forward to going deeper into researching this issue than I ever have before. And I cannot wait to share the results of that research with you. So stay tuned. Share the show. Thanks for listening. We will see you next time. Farewell.